This is the cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Guy Johnson is off today. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. And also joining me uh, for the hour, Christina Kino. She heads uh, coverage for us over in London, but she's here for three months. I made her sit in the studio next to me. Christine, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited. I think this is probably the first time that we're going to be doing this in person. I know. Sitting next to each other. I mean, it's kind of a misnomer now. The, sh- the name of the show is The Cable, but we're both here in New York because Guy has left us and yeah, abandoned us. he did for the day. So, you know what? We get to do whatever we want because he's not here. Um, European equities, though, also kind of did whatever they wanted. Uh, European Stock 600 added about 1.4% by the close over in London. Utilities traded a little bit heavy, though. Uh, but European stocks overall had a pretty good week. Um, very similar here in the U.S. as well. We see a powerful rally underway. We're right around the highs of the session that kind of dragged up uh, European equities as well. We're also kind of rounding out uh, the month, and there is a long holiday weekend. And next week, UK is going to be closed for certain days for the Queen's Jubilee. So you can think that volume is maybe a bit light. But we will get to all of this throughout the next hour for you. In the meantime, here's Charlie Pellet with some headlines for you. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Boris Johnson is urging more military support for Ukraine as it battles Russian forces, including sending advanced weapons such as multiple launch rocket systems that can strike targets from a far longer distance. Boris Johnson aired his support for more arms for Ukraine as he pushed back against the idea that the war, now in its fourth month, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky should focus instead on reaching a peace deal with Russia that could see Ukraine seed territory. The UK Treasury is set to collect record revenue from oil and gas this year with or without a windfall tax. Before the government imposed a new North Sea levy yesterday, the industry was set to deliver 28 billion pounds of corporate profits in 2022, with the state collecting 12 billion pounds in taxes. This according to consultant Wood McKenzie. Britain's airports, airlines and ports are facing their most frenetic weekend four years as a surge in vacation-bound passengers puts further stress on travel hubs already hobbled by a staffing shortfall and other issues. Gatwick said today was set to be the busiest day since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, surpassing April's Easter rush with more than 800 scheduled flights set to transport 120,000 passengers. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Charlie, when's the big trip? Uh, not till September for that one, but I'm scheming, trying to figure out, consulting with my wife. Can I get more time off to get over to the UK? Alex, it's it's a tough story for me personally because I have very, very, very few re- uh, uh, relatives back in the UK, even though I was born there. Mm-hmm. The clock is ticking, and I feel that I need to just say yeah. hello to some people who, you know, were still important parts of my life growing up. So Yeah. Oh, I understand that. So it's and sooner rather than later. But I tell you the airfares are nuts. Are I mean really? the airfares it's 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 off the charts. So anyway, I'm I'm scheming to cash in air miles, but buying air miles in order to be able to pay for a ticket, which winds up being t- cheaper than the cost of a ticket. 
Really? Yeah. Buying the miles is cheaper? That, that is some in serious some messed up fact right it, there. It, it, it can be under some circumstances, especially if you're going for a business class seat at a super off-peak time. Interesting. You can, you can really do very well by doing that in some circumstances. This is good. This is good. I, I, I'm not traveling this year, but next year I'm going to travel. I have a surprise uh, vacation for somebody, I, just in case she listens, I'm not going to tell her, uh, in February uh, that I use Miles too, and I'm going to have one in July also. There you go. I'm, so, I, I'm scheming for one more trip where I want to fly into what's classified as the world's most dangerous airport or coolest airport, depending on your point of view. This happens to be in Nepal. It's a small airport on the side of a, uh, of a mountain, and hmm. uh, basically uh, this is where people get dropped off when they're about to go hiking in the Himalayas. So wow. can't wait to do I that. I want to be Charlie when I grow up. <laughs> um, Christina, are you traveling when you're in the U.S.? Well, I'm going to be visiting a few uh, states apart from New York, of course. I, I have a wedding in Denver, so mm-hmm. probably get over there. Uh, listeners, let me know what your recommendations are for Denver. But mostly, I'm just going to take this time and enjoy being a New Yorker. You yeah. know? It's like three months in, in the city. I want to know what everyday New Yorkers like, what they don't like, what they would recommend seeing. I, I don't want to do the, the touristy things. I want to I want to live like a proper New Yorker over the next three months. So Christine's really fancy. She won an award here at Bloomberg, and she got to then do whatever she wants for three months. So she has a, th- a three-month stint here where she gets to do different jobs uh, within Bloomberg, because she's pretty fancy. We're basically calling it a work vacation. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe she 20% work and 80% vacation. That sounds that sounds awesome. Um, okay, so let's get to one of the, the exclusive interview of the day. Uh, Bloomberg was able to sit down with uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It was a wide-ranging interview, and we're going to discuss a little bit uh, throughout the next half hour of different parts of it. So the the interesting sort of relevant economic part was when he talked about inflation and energy costs, and of course that windfall tax that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced yesterday. Here's part of his conversation that he had with Kitty Donaldson. To tackle inflation in the medium term to try to deal in the immediate term you've got to you've got to deal with supply side issues and so we need the energy companies to be putting some more into into hydrocarbons uh, but we also need the whole country uh, to be investing in uh, more low carbon energy yes, and, yesterday's and announcement acts as an incentive to um, to buy gas and oil doesn't it or for, to produce gas and oil. well I think I think that uh, the we, we're going to need some Kitty, don't, I don't think we can turn our backs entirely on hydrocarbons. And you know, the UK actually has a flourishing sector in the in the northeast of Scotland. It's very important. Uh, we've got to keep that uh, keep that going. I think one of the lessons of the the current spike is we sh- we can't afford to be totally dependent on Putin's hydrocarbons. But at the same time, we've got to accelerate our drive for for low carbon energy. So if you look at the British Energy Security Strategy, 50 gigawatts of uh, of wind by 2030, 25 gigawatts of uh, of nuclear uh, by 2050. And these are big, big increases in in low carbon energy. And what they offer is a big platform for investment from overseas. Okay. And what I find in the last in the last uh, few weeks is a real appetite from international investors to put money in uh, in long term infrastructure projects in the UK, Can particularly. I- in the in the green energy sector. Okay, can I ask you about high spending? Do you risk getting the public addicted to high spending? Uh, and what, just quickly, what happens if, if there's a, if the war in Ukraine continues and this time next year there are still high energy prices? 
I think that the package that we've set out in the last couple of days, the package that Rishi set out, as I say, it's big potatoes. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a very considerable commitment to help the British people to do what we did in uh, the pandemic, put our arms around people, get them through uh, the surge in, in energy prices. And uh, we think that it will, it will last uh, until prices start to abate. And I'm confident they will. I think that supply will start to, to improve. And, and the, the humanity is always fertile in expedience and uh, immensely resourceful in coming up with solutions. Uh, we will find uh, new ways of getting energy on stream, not least in this country. But in the meantime, we're going to have a difficult period. I and mean, we've got to be absolutely clear with people. It is going to be difficult. And... The government c cannot solve every problem. And we can't cover everybody's uh, extra cost. But what we can do is make sure that we deal with the underlying causes of inflation, but also keep our economy strong and open to investment. That was Boris Johnson talking about the windfall tax that was announced yesterday with Kitty Donaldson in an exclusive interview. We'll have more on that on the geopolitics front as well. Uh, so stick with us. So, uh, Christine, basically, people are calling this like a helicopter money drop, basically, in terms of putting money into people's pockets. It's about six tenths of one percent of gross domestic uh, product. Well, I don't know. What are you hearing? What are people talking about with this? Well, you know, Alex, I think there was a little bit of disappointment after the spring budget because there was a lot of expectation that the government was going to expand or add a few fiscal measures to help with what we're calling the worst cost of living crisis in the UK in decades, right? And so when people didn't really get that from the spring budget, there was a lot of disappointment over what the government is doing now because it is a particularly difficult time for consumers. But, you know, I think from the government government's perspective, I think there was a little bit of consternation over essentially extending these um, fiscal assistance packages mm -hmm. that they started during the pandemic. You can tell even from the interview, um, our, our interview with Boris Johnson, that he really does sound quite hesitant to um, essentially keep the, the, the UK Tapped public open. addicted, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to all of these uh, fiscal stimulus measures. And so, you know, I think the windfall is potentially an attempt to mitigate some mm -hmm. of the um, negative Negativity around just overall um, perception of uh, government's assistance to to the public. Um, the question is, you know, it's it's a one-off thing, right? Even if it is helicopter money, it's a one-off thing. And so, is that going to be Isn't enough? Not how it starts. Isn't that how it always starts? <laughs> it's just this one time, you guys. This time, it's different. <laughs> um, I also wonder that. Do we have a? I wonder if there's a read yet on if this makes the Bank of England's job easier or harder. In that, if if a household gets money from the government to pay for bills, presumably then that means they have other money that they don't then have to spend on energy. Do they save it? Do they spend it on stuff? And is that then more inherently inflationary? Or does it give growth a chance to stabilize and then let the BOE just hike a lot? Yeah, that is a really good question, Alex. I mean, I, I think, you know, especially because the BOE has... Uh, essentially said that it's going to be very difficult for them to completely rein in inflation. Um, and, and it has been a uh, runway since basically the start of this year. And they have basically admitted defeat that they're not going to be able to do it themselves. And so I'm sure the Bank of England is probably relieved that they are getting at least a little bit of that fiscal um, help from, from the government. Now, to the question of what consumers are going to be doing with it, I it's a very good question 
question because, you know, if, if you're kind of thinking or if you're living paycheck to paycheck, then a little bit of extra money is probably going to go more to your essentials, right? It's, right, it's not totally. necessarily going to go to discretionary spending. It's probably going to go to pay your bills and mm-hmm. buy essentials like food and um, uh, toiletries. And so is that really something that could be sustainable and sustainable enough to kind of create that that growth impulse? I don't know. It's 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 kind of it's a very interesting question. Yeah, and um, I should point out that uh, Credit Suisse uh, weighed in on this and said that GDP growth is going to get at least two tenths of one percent increase due to this fifteen billion pound fiscal thing. Um, and that if you use that with other measures that were announced, you could avoid a recession this year in the UK. So like avoiding a recession is not necessarily like, hey, growth is amazing. But I wonder if just not getting into recession is enough for the ease, for the BOE to continue on a path that maybe we didn't know if they could have like a month ago. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I think, you know, getting a little bit of help on the growth front um, by whatever means necessary really mm-hmm. is probably quite valuable to to the BOE to essentially help them rein in that inflation because they are still very, very hesitant. They, they know what multiple rate hikes will do to the UK economy. You know, we, we've seen this. Markets are pricing for this. We've heard several Bank of England policymakers essentially allude to what kind of lies ahead of multiple rate hikes. And I think you know it's a very similar question that's confronting the Fed, the Fed now, mm-hmm. um, talking about this balance between growth or reigning in inflation, but what that is going to do to growth. And I think the Bank of England is a little bit ahead of, of the Fed in kind of seeing what lies beyond those, uh, those rate hikes. And yeah, a potential recession very much in the cards. But if this fiscal um, measure from the government is really going to be enough, to at least evade a recession, mm-hmm. then perhaps that gives the, the BOE a little bit of breathing room to do their job in inflation. Yeah, I have to wonder, too, though, like, I, I, how does this cost of living crisis, I mean, we only have like a minute, uh, go away anytime soon with this energy crisis? Because I remember back in the winter, a guy and I were talking about how he was just going to make his whole family wear a bunch of sweaters and, like, not turn the heat on until it reached, like, you know, I'm trying to do math. <laughs> Zero degrees or something like that. Um, you know, and, and, and that's not going to be cyclical. Like, that's a structural shift, really. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's, that's basically it. And, and so it really is all about kind of sustainability. And so, you know, unless we probably see any kind of sustained uh, decline in inflation or alternatively um, a sustained uh, fiscal assistance from the government, which, as you say, Alex, it could be a slippery slope, right? Mm-hmm. You, they, they give a little bit and then the public expects more. Um, either of those things would probably help mitigate that structural impact, as you say. But again, you know, it, it's one of these things where um, I think we're just going to have to wait and see yeah. if the government sees the need for it, then perhaps it will happen. Yeah. Um, well, it gets really hot here too, by the way. So you're definitely going to experience a New York weather uh, for the summer. Um, all right, coming up, we're going to have more of that exclusive interview with Boris Johnson. His comments about Vladimir Putin, he called him a crocodile. When asked if he could negotiate with him, we'll have more of that conversation and then what it means geopolitically going forward. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to The Cable. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Boris Johnson called Vladimir Putin basically a crocodile. This was part of our exclusive interview that we had with him with Kitty Donaldson. I wanted to play a little bit of that interview with him now. 
I think it's very, very important that we do not get into, we do not get lulled because of the incredible heroism of the Ukrainians yeah. in uh, in pushing the Russians back from the gates of Kiev. Yeah. Uh, because of their, their amazing valor of uh, President Zelensky, mm. we should not believe that this problem has gone away. On the contrary, mm. I'm afraid that uh, Putin, at great cost to himself and to, uh, to, to Russian military, is continuing to chew through ground uh, in Donbass. He's continuing to make uh, gradual, uh, slow, but I'm afraid palpable progress. And therefore, it is absolutely vital uh, that we continue to support the Ukrainians yeah. uh, militarily. And, and indeed, I think that they, what they need now is the uh, type of uh, rocketry, um, uh, a multiple launch rocket system, MLRS, yes. um, that uh, will enable them to uh, defend themselves against this very brutal Russian artillery. Okay. And that's where the world needs to, needs to go now. Okay, final question, and this is about President Zelensky. You've, yes. You've stood shoulder to shoulder with him, but there's certain calls around Europe, perhaps from France, from Germany, to maybe settle with Putin, try and... Uh, but I would say to any, I, I, to any such uh, you know, proponent of, of a deal with Putin, how can you deal? Yeah. How can you deal with a crocodile uh, when it's in the middle of eating your left leg? Uh, you know, what's the, what's the negotiation? Uh, and, and that is what Putin is doing. And any kind of... He will try to freeze the conflict. He will try and call for a ceasefire while he remains in possession of, uh, of substantial parts of, of you, Ukraine. And you say that to Emmanuel um, Macron? And I, I make that point to all my friends and, uh, and colleagues in the, in the G7 and at NATO. And by the way, everybody gets that. Once, once you go through the logic, you can see that it's very, very difficult you must to, get a, to, to get a negotiated solution. We desperately need, need it to end. Uh, we de the world needs it to end. Yeah. But the, 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 the one way that it can end is for Putin to accept that, uh, uh, let us say, that the denazification of Ukraine yeah. has taken place. Oh, I see. Uh, and that he's able to withdraw with dignity and honor. Joining us now for more is Roz Matheson, uh, joining us from Bloomberg. Roz, what was your takeaway from that interview in terms of the geopolitics stuff and what Bojo said about Putin? Well, it's interesting because he's very much saying that he endorses the idea that Ukraine needs to fight on. If anything, it needs even more offensive weapons than previously. Ukraine's been calling uh, for these multi-launch rocket systems that allow it to really target the Russian artillery in the east of the country, saying that time is running out there. Uh, and he's endorsing that, at least, and pushing back against what seems to be a little bit of a growing narrative that perhaps as we get into the fourth month of this war, is it better for the for Ukraine to simply negotiate a settlement to sort of engage and say, in order to get a ceasefire, do they have to be willing to give some territory away and enact a deal with the, with the Russian president to bring the war to an end? And you can see Ukraine's pushed back very heavily against that idea. And the UK prime minister in the interview with us today did the same. Uh, there's been some rumblings amongst other European leaders that maybe it's time to, to, to navigate a ceasefire with the Russian president. So very much supporting the Ukrainian position on that and saying that if you, if you give in to, to the Russian president now, even by giving him a little bit of ground in, in Ukraine, that might stop things for now. But in the longer term, 
given history, as we know, does that just sort of like embolden him at some point to go further and not only into Ukraine, but potentially into into Europe as a whole? So certainly a very robust defence of the Ukrainian position we saw from the UK Prime Minister today. Now, Ros, I feel like we've had this conversation before where, you know, the conclusion was made that the answer to uh, Ukraine getting the upper hand in this war is more artillery. Feels like that we've had a conversation like a month ago. And uh, so this seems to be still the line. But what do you think? I mean, is more artillery really the answer? We've had that call for uh, a few weeks, if not months now. um, And we don't seem to be any closer to the conflict ending. Well, the thing is that the conflict has actually sort of changed on the ground because having failed in the north, in a way, Ukraine is, is a slight victim of its own military success because it's pushed Russia out of those areas. And so Russia has really sort of coalesced its forces, its assets, its artillery in the east. It's fighting a much more traditional kind of war at this point than what it was doing initially in terrain that it's much better suited uh, to make gains. And so it has regrouped a bit and it's definitely moving forward slowly, but palpably, as the UK Prime Minister said today, in the east. And the sense from the government of Kiev is, well, that's very hard. It's much harder for them to fight that kind of conflict Mm -hmm. with Russia than what it was doing before and therefore it does need artillery and it really more importantly needs those long-range rockets that would allow it to target Russia from afar. Um, What the end game looked like is very different now than it was in the beginning almost 100 days ago. Do we know what an end game would look like at this point? Well, certainly whatever the end game is, it's narrower than it was initially. The idea that, that Russia could have a couple of days in Ukraine and they could, you know, achieve victory in their total kind of destruction of the state has disappeared. That initial goal was impossible. And now they have those narrower uh, aims which seem to be carving off uh, the east uh, of Ukraine into Russian territory and occupying that uh, for a protracted period, if not just declaring it Russian territory. So that seems to be the initial goal, basically the Russification of that area. And then perhaps from there, stretching further out to the south and the, and, and and then into Europe um, over time, as in sort of further towards Europe um, in Ukraine, occupying those ports, uh, dominating the trade. But that's certainly a much narrower uh, outcome than what they would have thought of initially. But either way, it's very clear that this conflict is in a protracted phase. It's bit by bit, but Russia um, in no inclination to leave that territory anytime soon. Yeah. Um, All right, Roz, we really appreciate it. Always wonderful analysis. Appreciate the time today. Uh, Roz Matheson uh, joining us there. And just from obviously humanitarian level, but then you widen it out to the energy crisis, the developing food crisis. Um, And the longer it goes on, the longer the other stuff goes on for as well. And then the ramifications, uh, etc. Um, All right. Well, coming up, we did get some really interesting data on the consumer and inflation today. We talked a lot about if we've seen peak inflation, and we'll dig more into that with Michael McKee. Stay with us. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson's off today, so joining me in the studio is Christina Kino. Uh, she leads everything related to macro stuff over in the UK, but she is here with me in studio in New York. Um, welcome. It's a pleasure. 
Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we were just talking about, you know, me wanting to live like a New Yorker for the next three months. So I very much welcome any suggestions, but please don't send me to anything touristy. I really want to know what do real New Yorkers do, say, for the weekend, which is what's coming up. I feel like Charlie Pellet wants to say something about this. I do. Get out to Governor's Island. Unbelievable oh, yeah. Place, right? Governor's Island. Unbelievable. It's free. It's beautiful. It's quick. It's easy. And it is the most one of the most Instagrammable spots in the world. I'm not Did, overselling it, but New York Harbor in the background, really Statue awesome. of Liberty, it's fantastic. Did you know there's a spa there now? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. And there's like a hotel where you can go. And I was, the... I was out there last year as they were putting the finishing touches on that. So it's a it's a great place to go. Lower Manhattan, I'll tell you how to get there. It's a good place to go. So enjoy. He's a fountain. He's a fountain of information. <laughs> All right, Charlie, uh, g- g- give us some headlines right, here. What well, else here's what's at? going on. Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the UK can dodge a recession in the months ahead, even as the cost of living crisis sets the stage for a difficult period. His remarks coming in a Bloomberg television interview, and he said he wants more military support for Ukraine as it battles Russian forces, including sending advanced weapons such as multiple launch rocket systems that can strike targets from a far longer distance. BP says it will look again at its plans in the UK, raising questions about whether whether a £5 billion windfall tax on oil and gas profits announced by the government includes enough incentives to preserve investment. Sri Lanka is now getting Russian crude oil that it will use to make fuel as the bankrupt nation faces crippling shortages of everything from gasoline to diesel. And Monaco is the place to be this weekend in the yacht world as the super wealthy rush to take in the Formula One Grand Prix. The nearly 100-year-old annual race is expected to see some showers over the next couple of days, but it's not expected to deter the floating party scene. More than 80 super yachts at a combined length of 2.8 miles are already clustered off the tiny city-state in the French Riviera, with more likely en route. No doubt Alex Steele probably our guy Johnson en route right now. Yeah, you know it. You know it. Um, all right, Charlie Pellet, thank you very much and good recommendation. Governor's Island, that was quality. Um, all right, let's get to the markets here in the U.S. You got the NASDAQ up by 2.5%. Uh, volume not really great, though. The SP around the highest of the session, the Dow up as well. Um, we did get some economic data out today. We got personal spending, personal income. Uh, spending actually moved higher than we thought. It was also revived higher for March. Um, the PCE deflator, which is what the Fed winds up looking at, their preferred measure of inflation, seemed to have moderated seems to have. We'll get some of the details on that. Uh, And the final read of uh, the University of Michigan sentiment, it's a really good indicator on how the consumers are actually feeling, also seem to moderate just a touch. What's our big takeaway? Michael McKee is here with us, Bloomberg International and Economics and Policy Correspondent. Um, Mike, when I asked you earlier kind of what my question was about uh, the data today, you said it was very nuanced. Yeah, because it's very early in this process of topping out maybe and starting to go back down. And there are a lot of what ifs, things that, uh, as Jay Powell has recently noted, the Fed has no control over. They can raise interest rates and it's not going to stop the Russian army. Uh, They can raise interest rates and it isn't going to get rid of COVID in China. Uh, So uh, they just have to hope that things go right. Now, uh, in the meantime, we have seen what we expected to see. We're seeing the inflation rate sort of top out, in part because of base effects from last year. The same months last year had very high inflation, and because in part because uh, uh, up until recently the oil prices had been stable, high but stable. Now they're going back up again. 
So we'll see if this continues into the next year. I know that uh, in the next month, I know that um, for one thing, uh, seeing lots of reports today about much higher airfares. Mm-hmm. Charlie, uh, we were just talking about that. And, mm-hmm. and the airlines have been cutting back on capacity uh, because they can't service them all. So supply and demand. There's not enough seats, and you're just going to pay more to fly, and that'll go into the inflation calculations, even though it all gets back to the idea of COVID in the United States. So the airlines don't have enough pilots. Now, Mike, you know, you so you see all the nuances, right? But if there is, if there is a, a budding recovery in consumer spending and just in the general state of the consumer, what could be the wild card or wild cards that could potentially derail that moving forward? Well, a couple of things. Um, it's not that there's a recovery by the consumer. They've just stayed steady buying stuff <laughs> since the pandemic began, in part because they got a lot of money from the government. And a lot of that went into the bank. And we're seeing people spend that down because the savings rate went down to 4.4%. That's a 14-year mm-hmm. low. So people are spending the money. The fact that they were able to keep up spending this month probably relates to the fact that they had money in the bank. Now they're going to, how far down do they want to go? At some point are they going to say, let me just keep some of this, you know, in reserve. Uh, And we've also seen credit card balances start to Mm -hmm. rise a little bit. So uh, we'll see how much uh, strength they still have. It doesn't look like yet we've reached a real demand destruction point with gasoline prices. But people are saying an average over $5 might do it. Generally, in the past, what's happened is people um, get used to paying a certain price. And so it's like the stock market. We get higher highs, but the high, the, the previous high doesn't shock people as much, and mm-hmm. they just go ahead and pay it. It's when it gets to a, a different level that then all of a sudden they say, I can't afford this anymore. Are people making money? Uh, Wages? Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, he's like, well, I I don't say know. yeah, I the, mean, the oil refiners, the airlines. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, people are making money, uh, but we've seen a decline. Uh, the Wages and salaries component of the PCE uh, rose by uh, six-tenths. It had been up eight-tenths the month before and 1.1% the month before. So we're seeing a sort of gradual decline, which may suggest that um, we're seeing a slight loosening in the labor market. It's really hard to tell. The jobless claims numbers don't suggest that we're going the other direction. We'll see what happens when we get to next Friday in the jobs report. But overall, it seems to be a a slight loosening. Now, the question is, are companies just not going to hire because they can't find people? So they've reached the point where they're not going to pay any extra money, or are they going to be forced to pay up? If people are spending a little less, and then, then the company's probably not going to continue raising prices if it's showing that people don't, if it's having an effect on demand. Now, Mike, let's bring in the Fed and its role in all of this. You made a really interesting point earlier when you said that the Fed, yes, can keep hiking rates to rein in inflation, but there are just some things that are outside of their control. And to that end, we have seen now both members of of the Federal Reserve Committee, as well as outside commentators like Kyle Bass, for instance, um, alluding then to what comes after those rate hikes, right? A potential recession, perhaps, or just uh, the potential of rate cuts 
that would immediately follow some of those rate hikes. Um, what do you make of all this uh, discussion at the moment? Well, it's an interesting discussion that's based on your positions in the markets uh, rather than what you think monetary. Po- I mean, you, these are people saying what they think monetary should be policy should be to help them in the markets. It's too early to know what's going to happen. And uh, I mean, I just go to the old cliche of we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, because <laughs> the, for every argument that the Fed is behind the curve and inflation is getting out of control, now we're seeing some things that suggest, well, maybe it, it won't. Uh, and the Fed doesn't know any more than anyone else does. If you've positioned yourself a certain way, you worry that things won't go that way. So you're talking about that. But if the Fed needs to pivot, they'll pivot, but they don't see any signs of it right now. So what do we make then of inflation expectations moving lower? Not in UMish, but say five year, five year or ten year. Like, do you understand that as just like a positioning kind of market thing versus something that that is actually happening in the economy? Well, I think there's a combination of that going on, but I think it's it's the the markets are generally accepting of the Fed's argument and are relatively pleased with the fifty basis point. Uh, promises for the next two months and feel like it will bring inflation down. I mean, they can also see that we have the base effects and we have other things going on. Uh, so there is, a, there is a belief in the markets that the Fed can get this done. Now, that the inflation break-evens are not pricing a recession. Uh, they're not recession break-evens. They're just saying inflation can come down. How it comes down is a totally different question. Whether it's a soft landing or a hard landing, am I right? Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's very interesting, though, because we are once again at this juncture where the markets are kind of preempting, looking forward to a few months down the line, whereas the Fed is still very much in the now and trying to contain this, right? And we've seen time and again kind of markets trying to force policymakers to go one way because of what they're potentially seeing um, a few months ahead. But this time it feels a bit different because. Because while the markets have started to, again, flag those recession worries, uh, what we really heard from Powell and the rest of the committee is that they're very, very committed to this aggressive stance because they really want to get uh, inflation under control very quickly and aggressively. Well, there's a couple of factors at work there. One is that the Fed does want to get inflation under control. But part of it is that the markets actually determine what happens because they have to translate the Fed policy into interest rates across the economy. So they want the markets to be as aggressive as they Mm -hmm. are and push them up. And if you look at a chart of the um, yield curve, the U.S. yield curve, from September when the Fed first started talking about the fact that it was going to start raising uh, rates earlier than people thought, to today, the yield curve has moved up not only significantly, but it is now priced above from twos to thirties, now priced above what the Fed has always considered neutral, two and a half, two to two and a half percent. So therefore, um, you're looking at uh, a Fed that is using the markets to get done what they want. The mm-hmm. forward guidance is working for them. So they have to be kind of uh, in that situation where they're going to uh, where they're where they're going to say we can get this done but they're di- the difference is that the, the, as I said if you have a position you look out in the future and you say um, what could go wrong with it the Fed has to look out in the future and say what if it works what if it doesn't work mm-hmm. what are the various alternative scenarios and there was an, a phrase that Jay Powell used the other day that I think didn't get uh, reported enough and it was that uh, right now they're in a risk management mode 
Um, they want to get inflation down, but they are prepared to pivot if they have to, and they don't want to lock themselves in too much. They're fairly certain they can do the 50-50, but then they may want to pause. But we don't know. We'll see where inflation is at that or, time. or even a pause can be like 25 bips rather than 50. Like That's It doesn't have true. to be like yeah. all of a sudden we go easier in any way whatsoever. Right. Okay, so, Mike, we have a long weekend here, official kickoff of the summer. Volume's going to be really light. What are you looking at? Like, what are going to be kind of the next milestones that we have to really pay attention to? Well, next week's a big one, of course, because it's jobs week. So we get the jobs report right. on Friday. Forgot. <laughs> uh, we get the ISM it's report. That thing again, that right? Thing. Yeah. <laughs> the ISM report on Wednesday. And because of the short week, ADPs moved to Thursday. It doesn't really tell us that much, but people trade on it a lot. So we do have a lot of data coming through about uh, inflation and the outlook for production and the outlook for employment. And again, it's not going to make any definitive judgments possible, but it does give us more signs along the way of where we're going. And what I think the Fed is looking for is incremental progress in each area. For example, the jobs report. We know the forecast is for 352,000. That'll probably change, but uh, that would be a step down from where it was last month or the month prior and the month prior. So if we're moving in that direction, then maybe labor markets aren't going to be as tight. And it it's not, again, as I said, definitive, but it's kind of what you want to see going in the right direction. Now, you know, in relation to, of course, what we're seeing in, in the labor market is the broader discussion over financial conditions, right? And, and there was the argument that has been made that, um, well, we haven't actually seen financial conditions tighten all that much. I mean, it's starting to, um, but certainly not to the same levels, perhaps, in, in previous um, pre-pandemic times. And so, is this something that you think um, is really what investors and um, uh, economic watchers should be keeping an eye on as opposed to kind of more singular measures, shall we say, of, of the conditions in, in the economy. There's, there's been talk that the Fed may sort of change the way it looks at things from just looking at something like the unemployment rate and the inflation rate to financial conditions because they're starting to tighten at a much faster pace. And it's possible that given what I was saying about the yield curve, that uh, these days markets can uh, puts, uh, put the Fed policy through much more quickly, and those long and variable lags are shorter and uh, less variable. And so uh, they may be able to get things done sooner. Mike, thank you very much. I release you back into the world. Uh, That's because it's a three-day weekend. There you go. Um, Mike, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg's Michael McKee joining us there. Uh, Coming up, we'll talk about the stock market implication about inflation with Lori Calvacina of RBC. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. All right, good evening. You're listening to The Cable. Let's get right to the market here. Uh, I talked to Lori Calvacina along with Anna Edwards. She's a chief market strategist for the U.S. RBC Capital Markets. And we talked about inflation and has inflation peaked or paused? And how do you invest for something like that? Our economics team has been optimistic that we were going to get some moderation. So I would say that we're we're in that moderation camp and that even if we haven't absolutely seen the peaks, that it's still coming and the trend is going to be more favorable going forward. Okay, a more favorable trend. Good to see you, Laurie. So moderation is what, what how you would describe it. So how do you position for that? What does a portfolio ready for moderation look like? 
<laughs> so look, I will tell you that we have generally tried to strike balance in our portfolio. So we have overweights on the growth side and the value side. On the value side, we still like financials. On the growth side, we've actually, and, and I'll stress that we're telling people to be very selective here, um, but we do like the tech sector on a longer term play. And we think if you can sort of get markets more comfortable with the idea that inflation is starting to moderate, um, and we're certainly starting to see 10-year yields take a little bit of a breather, that should help that tech trade moderate going forward. And I want to stress it's high quality tech, not low quality tech. We still think there's a lot to be nervous about in here. Um, but we would really just strike the idea of balance and frankly, not trying to play every little trade in the market. Fair enough. Um, let's talk about the value uh, trade for a second, Lori, because uh, Credit Suisse and Bank of America uh, both talked about value and sort of downgrading their value today. Um, and I wonder, has value, where has value become too expensive and where is value still value? <laughs> So look, I don't think that value has become too expensive. Um, I think that what's happened is that we've taken the pandemic-related froth out of the growth trade. And so whether we're looking at growth relative, value, relative to value or secular growth relative to cyclical or defensive in terms of valuations, a lot of our different valuation models are kind of back to where they were in 2018 or 2019. And when we look at things like financials, energy, materials, they are still quite cheap. Even industrials have moderated in terms of valuation. But what I think we're also starting starting to see is that parts of the growth trade, so things like technology, things like communication services, um, things like uh, consumer discretionary, for example, are starting to make a valuation case as well. Um, and I think, you know, when I think about sort of the flip from value to growth, and we actually made this call, you know, about a month or so ago, obviously a bit too early on it. But what we talked about was not just that sort of change in the valuation dynamic, but when you are shifting away uh, from a hot economy and an above average GDP environment back to a below trend economic environment, we do typically see growth sectors take leadership back from cyclical sectors. And I think that's one thing we can all be, you know, kind of pretty clear on right now that we're moving away from that hot or above average economy back to something that's at a minimum kind of at trend or below trend again. Mm. So from, from what you've been saying, uh, Laurie, there, you've been quite discerning in terms of, well, within tech, but also the, the, the other sectors that you're thinking about at this point. In terms of the overall market, does it look cheap enough to be buying at these levels? So we've told people valuations are not at hold your nose and buy levels. Things have not gotten so cheap that you absolutely have to buy the market. But we have noticed, and I think we put this piece out last week, where we said if you look at the recent melee in stocks that we've really gotten to a point whether you're looking on a trailing PE, which is not in dispute, a current year PE or a forward year PE, which are in dispute. But all three of those valuation multiples right now have actually cracked the long-term averages. Um, and so, you know, we think that it is fair at this point to start doing some bargain Hunting. There are bargains to be had out there. And frankly, the Russell 2000 small caps did that a month ago. We actually saw them go back down slightly below their long-term averages on a forward PE. And that's actually right where you bottomed out at in the pandemic. So if you can get people more comfortable in the fundamental narrative going forward, I think that stocks are cheap enough to buy. Are valuations a reason to buy on their own? No, not yet. Um, fair enough. Hey, Lori, talk to me about positioning. You guys do a lot of positioning work on mutual funds and hedge funds and kind of what's owned and what's not. Um, where are we? Uh, oh, maybe we lost feed. Do we get you? Oh. Are you still there? I'm here. I'm here. You, we're still there. Okay. We, we, we just okay. lost your picture for a second. Oh, there you are. Okay. That's all right. Work from home. Um, okay. So tell me where we are in terms of positioning. 
Um, the positioning data, if you look at, you know, sort of broad market versus sectors, what I'll tell you in terms of things like sectors, if you look at consumer staples positioning, we just got this data from the hedge fund 13Fs, um, you're basically back to 3Q 2016 levels. So the sort of favorite defensive sector of hedge funds, um, consumer staples, um, is right back to where we were at the end of the industrial earnings recession of 2015-2016. So I think at that sector level, you look pretty crowded in that particular defensive. Now, if you go back and you look at the broader market um, and you look at things like AAII net bull bear, retail investors have been in panic territory for quite some time. If you look at the institutional side on the CFTC data, you know, what we're actually starting to see is that the in institutions are catching down to retail. So you look at Russell 2000 future positioning, you've been down around financial crisis lows. Um, you've been not quite been there on S&P 500 contracts, but you've been getting pretty darn close in recent weeks. So I think the institutions have just simply had to catch up to the panic that developed on the retail side. And I think that's all very favorable for stocks mm. if you're a longer-term investor and looking out on a 12-month time frame. Okay, thinking about the longer term then, Laura, you think it's positive. I mean, things are pretty positive, very short term as well, don't they? Today, stocks doing very nicely. So it fe feels churlish to take us back to a recession possibility and recession conversation. But what would you be looking for in stocks to tell you that stocks are starting to price in recession? And, and, and talk to me about the timing of recessions actually happening and stocks bottoming out. So look, if, if you look at where stocks bottom out, it tends to be about four to five months before the recession is over. And if you go back and you look at the history of how markets trade in recessions, they tend to sell off early. And I'm just thinking about S&P 500 type numbers here. Um, but you tend to sort of see stocks trade down and then kind of make a V in the middle of recession. Um, so the recession is still going on when stocks already start to recover. Um, and if you look at, you know, sort of the, the amount of declines, you know, the framework that we've used all year has been that we thought that recession, we were not quite in that camp. Um, and we have, you know, sort of said, we think that this is a growth scare that we're in the middle of, where we will see a moderation in growth, but we'll sort of avoid the worst case scenarios. That was Lori Calvacina of RBC Capital Markets talking about uh, how to invest. Um, okay, so before we wrap up the show, first of all, Christine, thank you so much for joining me. It was such a pleasure. Likewise. Um, what What are you watching next week? Well, listen, I'm going to be watching, of course, it's it's payrolls week, you know, so you got to watch those payrolls. But in relation to that, how the rates markets are going to be pricing what we see in terms of data next week. I'm very, very interested to see if those rate hike expectations, particularly in September, if those get pulled further back from 50 to 25, mm. as well as what traders are going to be looking at for those June, July meetings. I think that's very important. Um, and for me, I think I'll be looking at ISM. That's coming out. Uh, 10 o'clock, the top of the hour on Wednesday. That should be a lot of fun here in the U.S. I hope you enjoyed the show. That does it for The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Thank you so much, Christine. Enjoy your lovely weekend in New York. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.